Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus by L. Frank Baum. Volume 3 Santa's Manhood Continued Chapter 6 The Wickedness of the Agwas I must now tell you something about the Agwas, that terrible race of creatures which caused our good claws so much trouble and nearly succeeded in robbing the children of the world of their earliest and best friend. I do not like to mention the Aguas, but they are part of this history and cannot be ignored. They were neither mortal nor immortals, but stood midway between those classes of beings. The Aguas were invisible to ordinary people, but not to immortals. They could pass swiftly through the air from one part of the world to another, and had the power of influencing the minds of human beings to do their wicked will. They were of gigantic stature and had coarse, scowling countenances, which showed plainly their hatred of all mankind. They possessed no consciences whatever and delighted only in evil deeds. Their homes were in rocky, mountainous places, from whence they sallied forth to accomplish their wicked purposes. The one of their number that could think of the most horrible deed for them to do was always elected King Agua, and all the race obeyed his orders. Sometimes these creatures lived to become a hundred years old, but usually they fought so fiercely among themselves that many were destroyed in combat, and when they died, that was the end of them. Mortals were powerless to harm them, and the immortals shuddered when the Aguas were mentioned, and always avoided them. So they flourished for many years unopposed and accomplished much evil. I am glad to assure you that these vile creatures have long since perished and passed from the earth, but in the days when Claus was making his first toys, they were a numerous and powerful tribe. One of the principal sports of the Aguas was to inspire angry passions in the hearts of little children, so that they quarreled and fought with one another. They would tempt boys to eat of unripe fruit, and then delight in the pain they suffered, and they urged little girls to disobey their parents, and then would laugh when the children were punished. I do not know what causes a child to be naughty in these days, but when the Aguas were on earth, naughty children were usually under their influence. Now when Claus began to make children happy, he kept them out of the power of the Aguas, for children possessing such lovely playthings as he gave them had no wish to obey the evil thoughts of the Aguas. Therefore, one year, when the wicked tribe was to elect a new king, they chose an Agua who proposed to destroy Claus and take him away from the children. There are, as you know, fewer naughty children in the world since Claus came to the Laughing Valley and began to make his toys, said the new king as he squatted upon a rock and looked around at the scowling faces of his people. Why, Bessie Blysom has not stamped her foot once this month, nor has Mary's brother slapped his sister's face or thrown the puppy into the rain barrel. Little Weakum took his bath last night without screaming or struggling, because his mother had promised he should take his toy cat to bed with him. Such a condition of affairs is awful for any Aguas to think of, and the only way we can direct the naughty actions of children is to take this Claus person away from them. Good! Good! good. 
cried the big Aguas in a chorus, and they clapped their hands to applaud the speech of the king. But what shall we do with him? asked one of the creatures. I have a plan, replied the wicked king, and what his plan was you will soon discover. That night Claus went to bed feeling very happy, for he had completed no less than four pretty toys during the day, and they were sure, he thought, to make four little children very happy. But while he slept, a band of invisible aguas surrounded his bed, bound him with stout cords, and then flew away with him to the middle of a dark forest in far-off Ethop, where they laid him down and left him. When morning came, Claus found himself thousands of miles away from any human being, a prisoner in the wild jungle of an unknown land. From the limb of a tree above his head swayed a huge python, one of those reptiles that are able to crush a man's bones in their coils. A few yards away crouched a savage panther, its glaring red eyes fixed full on the helpless claws. One of those monstrous spotted spiders whose sting is death crept stealthily toward him over the matted leaves, which shriveled and turned black at its very touch. But Claus had been reared in Bursey, and was not afraid. "'Come to me, ye nooks of the forest!' he cried, and gave the low, peculiar whistle that the nooks know. The panther, which was about to spring upon its victim, turned and slunk away. The python swunk itself into the tree and disappeared among the leaves. The spider stopped short in its advance and hid beneath a rotting log. Claus had no time to notice them, for he was surrounded by a band of harsh-featured nooks, more crooked and deformed in appearance than any he had ever seen. "'Who are you to call at us?' one demanded in a gruff voice. "'The friend of your brothers in Bursey,' answered Claus. "'I have been brought here by my enemies, the Aguas, and left to perish miserably. Yet now I implore your help to release me and send me home again.' "'Have you the sign?' asked another. "'Yes,' said Claus. They cut his bonds, and with his free arms he made the secret sign of the nooks. Instantly they assisted him to stand upon his feet, and they brought him food and drink to strengthen him. "'Our brothers in Bursey make queer friends,' grumbled an ancient nook whose flowing beard was pure white. "'But he who knows our secret sign and signal is entitled to our help, whoever he may be.' Close your eyes, stranger, and we will conduct you to your home. Where shall we seek it? Tis the Laughing Valley, answered Claw, shutting his eyes. There is but one Laughing Valley in the world, so we cannot go astray, remarked the Nook. As he spoke, the sound of his voice seemed to die away. So Claus opened his eyes to see what had caused the change. To his astonishment, he found himself seated on the bench by his own door, with the Laughing Valley spread out before him. That day he visited the wood nymphs and related his adventures to Queen Zerline and Nessil. "'The Aguas have become your enemies,' said the lovely queen thoughtfully. "'So we must do all we can to protect you from their power.' "'It was cowardly to bind him while he slept,' remarked Nessil with indignation. "'The evil ones are ever cowardly,' answered Zerline. But our friend's slumber shall not be disturbed again. The queen herself came to the dwelling of Claus that evening and placed her seal upon every door and window to keep out the aguas, 
and under the seal of Queen Zerline was placed the seal of the fairies, and the seal of the riles, and the seal of the nooks, that the charm might become more powerful. And Claus carried his toys to the children again, and made many more little ones happy. You may guess how angry the King Agua was. They raged madly for a whole week, and then held another meeting among the rocks. It's useless to carry him where the nooks reign, said the king, for he has their protection. So let us cast him into a cave of our own mountains, where he will surely perish. This was promptly agreed to, and the wicked band set out that night to seize Claus. But they found his dwelling guarded by the seals of the immortals, and were obliged to go away baffled and disappointed. Never mind, said the king. He does not always sleep. The next day, as Claus traveled to the village across the plain, where he intended to present a toy squirrel to a lame boy, he was suddenly set upon by the Arguas, who seized him and carried him away to the mountains. There they thrust him into a deep cavern and rolled many huge rocks against the entrance to prevent his escape. Thus deprived of light and food, with little air to breathe, our Claus was indeed in a pitiful plight, but he spoke the mystic words of the fairies, which always command their friendly aid, and they came to his rescue and transported him to the laughing valley in the twinkling of an eye. Thus the Aguas discovered they might not destroy one who had earned the friendship of the immortals, so the evil band sought other means of keeping Claus from bringing happiness to children and so making them obedient. Whenever Claus set out to carry his toys to the little ones, an Agua, who had been sent to watch his movements, sprang upon him and snatched the toys from his grasp. The children were no more disappointed than was Claus when he was obliged to return home disconsolate. Still he persevered and made many toys for his little friends and started with them for the villages. And always the Aguas robbed him as soon as he had left the valley. They threw the stolen playthings into one of their lonely caverns, and quite a heap of toys accumulated before Claus became discouraged and gave up all attempts to leave his valley. Then the children began coming to him since they found he did not go to them. But the wicked Agua flew around them and caused their steps to stray and their paths to become crooked, so never a little one could find a way into the laughing valley. Lonely days now fell upon Claus, for he was denied the pleasure of bringing happiness to children whom he had learned to love. Yet he bore it up bravely, for he thought surely the time will come when the Aguas would abandon their evil designs to injure him. He devoted all his hours to toy-making, and when one plaything had been completed, he stood it on a shelf he had built for that purpose. When the shelf became filled with a row of toys, he made another, and filled that also, so that in time he had many shelves filled with gay and beautiful toys representing horses, dogs, cats, elephants, lambs, rabbits, and deer, as well as many pretty dolls of all sizes and balls and marbles of baked clay painted in gay colors. Often as he glanced at this array of childish treasures, the heart of good old Claus became sad. So greatly did he long to carry the toys to his children, and at last, because he could not bear it any longer, he ventured to go to the great Ak, to whom he told the story of his persecution by the Aguas, and he begged the master woodsman to assist him.
Chapter 7 The Great Battle Between Good and Evil Act listened gravely to the recital of Claus, stroking his beard the while with the slow, graceful motion that betokened deep thought. He nodded approvingly when Claus told him how the nooks and fairies had saved him from death, and frowned when he heard that the Aguas had stolen the children's toys. At last he said, From the beginning I have approved the work you are doing among the children of men, and it annoys me that your good deeds should be thwarted by the Aguas. We immortals have no connection whatever with the evil creatures who have attacked you. Always have we avoided them, and they in turn have hitherto taken care not to cross our paths. But in this matter I find they have interfered with one of our friends, and I will ask them to abandon their persecution, as you are under our protection. Claus thanked the Master Woodsman most gratefully, and returned to his valley while Ak, who never delayed carrying out his promises, at once travelled to the mountain of the Aguas. There, standing on the bare rocks, he called on the king and his people to appear. Instantly the place was filled with throngs of scowling Aguas, and their king perched himself on the point of a rock and demanded fiercely, Who dares call on us? It is I, the master woodsman of the world, responded Ak. There are no forests here for you to claim, the king cried angrily. We owe no allegiance to you, nor any immortal. That is true, replied Ak calmly. Yet you have ventured to interfere with the actions of Claus, who dwells in the Laughing Valley, and is under our protection. Many of the Aguas began muttering at this speech, and their king turned threateningly on the master woodsman. You are set to rule the forests, but the plains and valleys are ours. Keep to your own dark woods. We'll do as we please with claws. You shall not harm our friend in any way, replied Act. Shall we not? asked the king impudently. You'll see. Our powers are vastly superior to those of mortals, and fully as great as those of immortals. It is your conceit that misleads you, said Ak sternly. You are a transient race, passing from life into nothingness. We who live forever pity but despise you. On earth you are scorned by all, and in heaven you have no place. Even the mortals, after their earthly life, enter into another existence for all time, and so are your superiors. How then dare you, who are neither mortal nor immortal, refuse to obey my wish? The Aguas sprang to their feet with menacing gestures, but their king motioned them back. Never before, he cried to Ak, with his voice trembling with rage, as an immortal declared himself the master of the Aguas. Never shall an immortal venture to interfere with our actions again. We will avenge your scornful words by killing your friend Claus within three days. And none of you immortals can save him from our wrath. We defy your power. Be gone, Master Woodsman of the World. In the country of the Aguas, you have no place. It is war, declared Ak with flashing eyes. It is war, returned the king savagely. In three days, your friend will be dead. 
The master turned away and came to his forest of Bursey, where he called a meeting of the immortals and told them of the defiance of the Aguas and their purpose to kill Claus within three days. The little folk listened to him quietly. What shall we do? These creatures are of no benefit to the world, said the prince of the Nooks. We must destroy them. Their lives are devoted only to evil deeds, said the prince of the Riles. We must destroy them. They have no conscience and endeavour to make all mortals as bad as themselves, said the queen of the fairies. We must destroy them. They have defied the great Ack and threatened the life of our adopted son, said the beautiful queen Zerline. We must destroy them. The master woodsman smiled. You speak well. These Aguas we know to be a powerful race, and they will fight desperately. Yet the outcome is certain, for we who live can never die, even though conquered by our enemies. While every Agua who is struck down is one foe the less to oppose us. Prepare then for battle, and let us resolve to show no mercy to the wicked. Thus rose that terrible war between the immortals and the spirits of evil, which is sung of in fairyland to this very day. The King Agua and his band determined to carry out the threat to destroy Claus. They now hated him for two reasons. First, he made children very happy, and second, he was a friend of the Master Woodsman. But since Ack's visit, they had reason to fear the opposition of the immortals, and they dreaded defeat. So the king sent swift messengers to all parts of the world to summon every evil creature to their aid. On the third day after the declaration of war, a mighty army was at the command of the King Agua. There were three hundred Asiatic dragons, breathing fire that consumed everything it touched. These hated mankind and all good spirits. There were three-eyed giants of Tartary, a host of themselves, who liked nothing better than to fight. And next came the black demons from Patalonia, with great spreading wings like those of bats, which swept terror and misery through the world as they beat upon the air. And joined to these were the gazel goblins, with long talons as sharp as swords, with which they clawed the flesh from their foes. Finally, every mountain agua in the world had come to participate in the great battle with the immortals. The King Agua looked around upon his vast army, and his heart beat high with wicked pride, for he believed he would surely triumph over his gentle enemies, who had never before been known to fight. But the Master Woodsman had not been idle. None of his people was used to warfare, yet now they were called upon to face the hosts of evil they willingly prepared for the fray. Ack had commanded them to assemble in the Laughing Valley, where Claus, ignorant of the terrible battle that was about to be raged on his account, was quietly making toys. Soon the entire valley from hill to hill was filled with little immortals. The master woodsman stood first, bearing a gleaming axe that shone like burnished silver. Next came the riles, armed with sharp thorns from bramble bushes. Then the nooks, bearing the spears they used, when they were forced to prod their savage beasts into submission. The fairies dressed in white gauze with rainbow-hued wings bore golden wands, and the wood-nymphs in their uniforms of oak-leaf green 
carries swishes from ash trees as weapons. Loud laughed the Agua king when he beheld the size and arms of his foe. To be sure, the mighty axe of the woodsman was to be dreaded, but the sweet-faced nymphs and pretty fairies, the gentle riles and the crooked nooks, were such harmless folk that he almost felt shame at having to call such a terrible host to oppose them. Since these fools dare to fight, he said to the leader of the Tartary giants, I will overwhelm them with our evil powers. To begin the battle, he poised a great stone in his left hand and cast it fully against the sturdy form of the master woodsman, who turned it aside with his axe. Then rushed the three-eyed giants of Tartary upon the nooks, and the goozle goblins upon the riles, and the fire-breathing dragons upon the sweet fairies. Because the nymphs were axe-owned people, the band of Aguas sought them out, thinking to overcome them with ease. But it is the law that while evil unopposed may accomplish terrible deeds, the power of good can never be overthrown when opposed to evil. Well had it been for the King Agua had he known the law. His ignorance cost him his existence, for one flash of the axe borne by the master woodsman of the world cleft the wicked king in twain and rid the earth of the vilest creature it contained. Greatly marvel the Tartary giants when the spears of the little nooks pierced their thick walls of flesh and sent them reeling to the ground with howls of agony. Woe came upon the sharp taloned goblins when the thorns of the riles reached their savage hearts and let their life-blood sprinkle all the plain. And afterwards from every drop a thistle grew. The dragons paused astonished before the fairy wands, and whence rushed a power that caused their fiery breasts to flow back on themselves, so that they shriveled away and died. As for the Aguas, they had scant time to realize how they were destroyed, for the ash switches of the nymphs bore a charm unknown to any Agua, and turned their foes into clods of dirt at the slightest touch. When Ak leaned upon his gleaming axe and turned to look over the field, he saw the few giants who were able to run disappearing over the distant hills on their return to Tartary. The goblins had perished every one, as had the terrible dragons, while all that remained of the wicked Aguas was a great number of earthen hillocks dotting the plain. And now the immortals melted from the valley like dew at sunrise to resume their duties in the forest, while Ak walked slowly and thoughtfully to the House of Claws and entered. You have many toys ready for the children, said the woodsman, and now you may carry them across the plain to the dwellings and villages without fear. Will not the Aguas harm me? asked Claus eagerly. The Aguas have perished. Now I will gladly be done with wicked spirits and with fighting and bloodshed. It is not from choice that I told of the Aguas and their allies and of their great battle with the Immortals. They were part of this history and could not be avoided. Chapter 8. The First Journey with the Reindeer Those were happy days for Claus when he carried his accumulation of toys to the children who had awaited them for so long. During his imprisonment in the valley, he had been so industrious that all his shells were filled with playthings, and after quickly supplying the little ones living nearby 
he saw he now had to extend his travels to wider fields. Remembering the time when he had journeyed with Ack through all the world, he knew children were everywhere, and he longed to make as many possible happy with his gifts. So he loaded a great sack with all kinds of toys, and slung it upon his back that he might carry it more easily, and then he started off on a longer trip than he had ever yet undertaken. Wherever he showed his merry face in hamlet or farmhouse, he received a cordial welcome, for his fame had spread into far lands. At each village the children swarmed about him, following his footsteps wherever he went, and the women thanked him gratefully for the joy he brought their little ones, and the men looked upon him curiously that he should devote his time to such a queer occupation as toy-making. But every one smiled at him and gave him kindly words, and Claus felt amply repaid for his long journey. When the sack was empty, he went again to the Laughing Valley, and once more filled it to the brim. This time he followed another road into a different part of the country, and carried happiness to many children who never before had owned a toy or guessed that such a delightful plaything existed. After a third journey so far away that Claus was many days walking the distance, the store of toys became exhausted, and without delay he set about making a fresh supply. From seeing so many children and studying their tastes, he had acquired several new ideas about toys. The dollies were, he had found, the most delightful of all playthings for babies and little girls, and often those who could not say dolly would call for a doll in their sweet baby talk. So Claus resolved to make many dolls of all sizes, and to dress them in bright-coloured clothing. The older boys, and even some of the girls, loved the images of animals, so he still made cats and elephants and horses. And many of the little fellows had musical natures, and longed for drums and cymbals and whistles and horns. So he made a number of toy drums, with tiny sticks to beat them with, and he made whistles from willow trees, and horns from the bog reeds, and cymbals from bits of beaten metal. All this kept him quite busily at work, and before he realized it, it was winter season again, with deeper snows than usual, and he knew he could not leave the valley with his heavy pack. Moreover, the next trip would take him farther from home than ever before, and Jack Frost was mischievous enough to nip his nose and ears if he undertook the long journey while the Frost King reigned. The Frost King was Jack's father and never reproved him for his pranks. So Claus remained at his workbench, but he whistled and sang as merrily as ever, for he could not allow disappointment to sour his temper or make him unhappy. One bright morning he looked from his window and saw two deer he had known in the forest walking toward his house. Claus was surprised, not that the friendly deer should visit him, but they walked on the surface of the snow as easily as if it was solid ground, notwithstanding the fact that throughout the valley the snow lay many feet deep. He had walked out of his house a day or two before and had sunk up to his armpits in a drift. So when the deer came near, he opened the door and called to them. Good morning, Flossie. Tell me, how are you able to walk on the snow so easily? It is frozen hard, answered Flossie. The Frost King breathed on it, said Glossie, coming up. And the surface is now as solid as ice. Perhaps, remarked Claus thoughtfully. I might now carry my pack of toys to the children. Is it a long journey? asked Flossie. Yes, it will take me many days, for the pack is heavy. 
Then the snow would melt before you could get back. You must wait until spring, Claus, said the deer. Claus sighed. Had I your fleet feet, I could make the journey in a day. But you don't, returned Glossie, looking at his own slender legs with pride. Perhaps I could ride upon your back, Claus ventured to remark after a pause. Oh no, our backs are not strong enough to bear your weight, said Flossie decidedly. But if you had a sledge and could harness us to it, we might easily draw you and your pack as well. I will make a sledge, exclaimed Claus. Will you agree to draw me if I do? Well, replied Flossie, we must first go and ask the Nooks who are our guardians for permission, but if they consent, you can make a sledge and harness and we'll assist you. Then go at once, cried Claus eagerly. I'm sure the friendly Nooks will give their consent, and by the time you are back I shall be ready to harness you to my sledge. Flossie and Glossie, being dear of much intelligence, had long wished to see the great world, so they gladly ran over the frozen snow to ask the Nooks if they might carry Claus on his journey. Meanwhile, the toy maker hurriedly began the construction of a sledge, using materials from his woodpile. He made two long runners that turned upwards at the front end, and across these nailed short boards to make a platform. It was soon completed, but it was as rude in appearance as is possible for a sledge to be. The harness was more difficult to prepare, but Claus twisted strong cords together and knotted them so that they would fit around the necks of the deer in the shape of a collar. From these ran other cords to fasten the deer to the front of the sledge. Before the work was completed, Glossy and Flossie were back from the forest, having been granted permission by Will Nook to make the journey with Claus, provided they would return to Bursey by daybreak the next morning. That is not a very long time, said Flossie, but we are swift and strong, and if we get started by this evening we can travel many miles during the night. Claus decided to make the attempt, so he hurried on with his preparations as fast as possible. After a time, he fastened the collars around the necks of his steeds and harnessed them to his rude sledge. Then he placed a stool on the little platform to serve as a seat and filled a sack with his prettiest toys. How will you guide us? asked Glossie. We've never been out of the forest before, except to visit your house, so we shall not know the way. Claus thought about that for a moment. Then he brought more cords and fastened two of them to the spreading antlers of each deer, one on the right and the other on the left. "'Those will be my reins,' said Claus, "'and when I pull them to the right or to the left, you must go in that direction. If I do not pull the reins at all, you may go straight ahead.' "'Very well,' answered Glossy and Flossie, and then they asked, "'Are you ready?' Claus seated himself upon the stool and placed the sack of toys at his feet, and then gathered up the reins. All ready! Ha, ha, ha! he shouted merrily. Away we go! The deer leaned forward, lifted their slender limbs, and the next moment away flew the sledge over the frozen snow. The swiftness of the motion surprised Claus, for in a few strides they were across the valley and gliding over the broad plain beyond. The day had melted into evening by the time they started, for swiftly as Claus had worked, many hours had been consumed in making his preparations. But the moon shone brightly to light their way, 
and Claus soon decided it was just as pleasant to travel by night as by day. The deer liked it better, for although they wished to see something of the world, they were timid about meeting men, and now all the dwellers in the towns and farmhouses were sound asleep and could not see them. Away and away they sped, on and on over the hills and through the valleys, across the plains until they reached a village where Claus had never been before. He called on them to stop, and they immediately obeyed, but a new difficulty now presented itself, for the people had locked their doors when they had gone to bed, and Claus found he could not enter the houses to leave his toys. "'I'm afraid, my friends, we have made our journey for nothing, for I shall be obliged to carry my playthings back home again without giving them to the children of the village.' "'What's the matter?' asked Flossie. "'The doors are locked, and I cannot get in.' answered Claus. Glossie looked around at the houses. The snow was quite deep in that village, and just before them was a roof only a few feet above the sledge. A broad chimney, which seemed to Glossie big enough to admit Claus, was at the peak of that roof. "'Why don't you climb down that chimney?' asked Glossie. Claus looked at it. "'That would be easy enough if I were on top of the roof,' he answered. "'Then hold fast, and we'll take you there.' said the deer, and they gave one bound to the roof and landed beside the big chimney. Good, cried Claus, well pleased. Ha, ha, ha! And he slung the pack of toys over his shoulder and got into the chimney. There was plenty of soot on the bricks, but he did not mind that, and by placing his hands and knees against the sides, he crept downward until he had reached the fireplace. Leaping lightly over the smouldering coals, he found himself in a large sitting room, where a dim light burned. From this room, two doorways led into smaller chambers. In one, a woman lay asleep with a baby beside her in a crib. Claus laughed, but he did not laugh aloud for fear of waking the baby. Then he slipped a big doll from his pack and laid it in the crib. The little one smiled as if dreaming of the pretty plaything it was about to find on the morrow, and Claus crept softly from the room and entered at the other doorway. Here he found two boys, fast asleep, with their arms around each other's necks. Claus gazed at them lovingly a moment, and then placed upon the bed a drum, two horns, and a wooden elephant. He did not linger, now that his work in this house was done, but climbed the chimney again and seated himself on his sledge. "'Can you find another chimney?' he asked the reindeer. "'Easily enough,' replied Glossie and Flossie. Down to the edge of the roof they raced, and then, without pausing, leapt through the air to the top of the next building, where a huge old-fashioned chimney stood. "'Don't be so long this time,' cried Flossie, "'or we shall never get back to the forest by daybreak.' Claus made a trip down the chimney again and found five children sleeping in the house, all of whom were quickly supplied with toys. When he returned, the deer sprang to the next roof, but on descending the chimney, Claus found no children there. That was not often the case in any village, however, so he lost less time than you might suppose in visiting the dreary homes where there were no little ones. When he had climbed down the chimneys of all the houses in that village and had left a toy for every sleeping child, Claus found that his great sack was not yet half-emptied. "'Onward, friends!' he called to the deer. "'We must find another village! Ha, ha, ha!' So away they dashed, although it was long past midnight, and in a surprisingly short time they came to a large city 
the largest Claus had ever visited since he had begun to make toys. But, nothing daunted by the throng of houses, he set to work at once, and his beautiful steeds carried him rapidly from one roof to another, only the highest being beyond the leaps of the agile deer. At last the supply of toys was exhausted, and Claus seated himself on the sledge, with the empty sack at his feet, and turned the heads of Glossy and Flossie toward home. Presently Glossy asked, What is that grey streak in the sky? It's the coming of the dawn of day, answered Claus, surprised to find it was so late. Good gracious, exclaimed Glossy, then we shall not be home by daybreak, and the nooks will punish us and never let us come again. We must race for the Laughing Valley and make our best speed, returned Flossie. Hold on fast, friend Claus. So Claus held fast, and the next moment was flying so swiftly over the snow that he could not see the trees as they swirled past. Up hill and down dale, swift as an arrow shot from a bow they dashed, and Claus shut his eyes to keep the wind out of them and left the deer to find their own way. It seemed to him they were plunging through space, but he was not at all afraid. The nooks were severe masters, and must be obeyed at all hazards, and the grey streak in the sky was growing brighter every moment. Finally the sledge came to a sudden stop, and Claus, who was taken unaware, tumbled from his seat into a snowdrift. As he picked himself up, he heard the deer crying, Quick, friend, quick, cut away our harnesses! He drew his knife and rapidly severed the cords, and then he wiped the moisture from his eyes and looked around. The sledge had come to a stop in the Laughing Valley. Only a few feet he found from his own door. In the east the day was breaking, and turning to the edge of Bursey, he saw Glossy and Flossie just disappearing into the forest. Chapter 9 Santa Claus Claus thought that none of the children would ever know where his toys came from, which they found by their bedsides when they wakened the following morning. But kindly deeds are sure to bring fame, and fame has many wings to carry its tidings into far land. So for miles and miles in every direction, people were talking of Claus and his wonderful gifts to the children. The sweet generousness of his work caused a few selfish folk to sneer. But even these were forced to admit their respect for a man so gentle-natured that he loved to devote his life to pleasing the helpless little ones of his race. Therefore the inhabitants of every city and village had been eagerly watching for the coming of Claus, and remarkable stories of his beautiful playthings were told to the children to keep them patient and contented. When on the following morning of the first trip of Claus with his deer, the little ones came running to their parents with pretty toys they had found, and asked from whence they had come. There was but one reply to the question. The good claws must have been here, my darlings, for his are the only toys in all the world. But how did he get in? asked the children. At this the fathers shook their heads, being themselves unable to understand how claws had gained admittance to their homes. But the mothers, watching the glad faces of the dear ones, whispered that the good Claus was no mortal man, but surely a saint, and they piously blessed his name for the happiness he had bestowed upon their children. A saint, said one of the parents with bowed head, has no need to unlock doors if it pleases him to enter our homes. 
and afterwards, when a child was naughty or disobedient, its mother would say, You must pray to the good Santa Claus for forgiveness. He does not like naughty children, and unless you repent, he will bring you no more pretty toys. But Santa Claus himself would not have approved of this speech. He brought toys to the children because they were little and helpless, and because he loved them. He knew that the best of children were sometimes naughty, and that the naughty ones were often good. It is the way of children the world over, and he would not have changed their natures had he possessed the power to do so. And that is how our clause became Santa Claus. It is possible for any man by his good deeds to enshrine himself as a saint in the hearts of the people. Chapter 10 Christmas Eve The day that broke as Claus returned from his night ride with Glossy and Flossie, brought him new trouble. Will Nook, the chief guardian of the deer, came to him, surly and ill-tempered, to complain that he had kept Glossy and Flossie beyond daybreak in opposition to his orders. "'Yet it could not have been very long after daybreak,' said Claus. "'It was one minute after,' answered Will Nook. "'And that is as bad as one hour.' I shall set the stinging gnats on Glossy and Flossy, and they will thus suffer terribly for their disobedience. Don't do that. It was my fault, begged Claus. But Will Nook would listen to no excuses, and went away grumbling and growling in his ill-natured way. For this reason, Claus entered the forest to consult Nessil about rescuing the good deer from their punishment. To his delight, he found his old friend, the master woodsman, seated in the circle of nymphs. Ak listened to the story of the night journey to the children and of the great assistance the deer had been to Claus by drawing his sledge over the frozen snow. I do not wish my friends to be punished if I can save them, said the toy maker when he had finished relating the story. They were only a minute late and they ran swifter than a bird flies to get home before daybreak. Axe stroked his beard thoughtfully for a moment and then sent for the Prince of the Nooks, who rules all his people in Bursey, and also for the Queen of the Fairies and the Prince of the Riles. When all had assembled, Claus told his story again, at Axe's command. And then the Master addressed the Prince of the Nooks, saying, The good work that Claus is doing among mankind deserves the support of every honest immortal. Already he is called a saint in some of the towns, and before long the name of Santa Claus will be lovingly known in every home that is blessed with children. Moreover, he is a son of our forest, so we owe him our encouragement. You, ruler of the Nooks, have known him these many years. Am I not right in saying he deserves our friendship? The prince crooked and sour of visage, as all nooks are, looked only upon the dead leaves at his feet and muttered, You are the master woodsman of the world. Axe smiled, but continued in softer tones. It seems that the deer which are guarded by your people can be of great assistance to Claus, and as they seem willing to draw his sledge, I beg that you will permit him to use their services whenever he pleases. The prince did not reply, but tapped the curled point of his sandal with the tip of his spear, as if in thought. 
Then the fairy queen spoke to him in this way. If you consent to Ak's request, I will see that no harm comes to your deer while they are away from your forest. And the prince of the Ryle added, For my part, I will allow to every deer that assists claws the privilege of eating my kaza plants, which give strength, and my grawl plants, which give fleetness of foot, and my marbon plants, which give long life. And the queen of the nymphs said, The deer which draws the sledge of claws will be permitted to bathe in the forest pool of Neras, which will give them sleek coats and wonderful beauty. The prince of the nooks, hearing these promises, shifted uneasily on his seat, for in his heart he hated to refuse a request of his fellow immortals. Although they were asking an unusual favour at his hands, the nooks are unaccustomed to granting favours of any kind. Finally, he turned to his servants and said, Call Will Nook. When the surly Will came and heard the demands of the immortals, he protested loudly against granting them. Dear are dear, he said, and nothing but dear. Were they horses, it would be right to harness them like horses. But no one harnesses deer because they are free wild creatures, owing no service to any sort of mankind. It would degrade my deer to label for Claus, who is only a man in spite of the friendship lavished on him by the immortals. You have heard, said the prince to Ack. There is truth in what Will says. Call Glossy and Flossy, returned the master. The deer were brought to the conference, and Ack asked them if they objected to drawing the sledge for claws. No, indeed, replied Glossy. We enjoyed the trip very much. And we tried to get home by daybreak, added Flossy, but we're unfortunately a minute late. A minute lost at daybreak does not matter. You are forgiven for that delay said Ack. Provided it does not happen again, said the Prince of the Nook sternly. And will you permit them to make another journey with me? asked Claus eagerly. The Prince reflected while he gazed at Will, who was scowling, and at the Master Woodsman, who was smiling. Then he stood up and addressed the company as follows. Since you all urge me to grant the favour, I will permit the deer to go to Claus once a year, on Christmas Eve, provided they always return to the forest by daybreak. He may select any number he pleases, up to ten, to draw his ledge, and those shall be known among us as reindeer, to distinguish them from the others. And they shall bathe in the pool of Neras, and eat kaza, and grawl, and marbon plants, and shall be under the special protection of the fairy queen. And now cease scowling, Wilnook, for my word shall be obeyed. He hobbled quickly away through the forest to avoid the thanks of Claus and the approval of the other immortals, and Will, looking as cross as ever, followed him. But Ack was satisfied, knowing he could rely on the promise of the prince, however grudgingly given, and Glossy and Flossy ran home, kicking up their heels delightedly at every step. "'When is Christmas Eve?' asked Claus of the master. "'In about ten days,' he replied. Then I cannot use the deer this year, said Claus thoughtfully, for I shall not have enough time to make a sack full of toys. The shrewd prince foresaw that, responded Ack, and therefore named Christmas Eve as the day you might use the deer, knowing it would cause you to lose an entire year. 
If I only had the toys the Aguas stole from me, said Claus sadly, I could easily fill my sack for the children. Where are they? asked the master. I don't know, replied Claus, but the wicked Aguas probably hid them in the mountains. Ak turned to the fairy queen. Can you find them? I will try, she replied brightly. Then Claus went back to the Laughing Valley to work as hard as he could, and a band of fairies immediately flew to the mountains that had been haunted by the Aguas and began to search for the stolen toys. The fairies, as we well know, possess wonderful powers, but the cunning Aguas had hidden the toys in a deep cave and covered the opening with rocks so no one could look in. Therefore, all the searching for the missing playthings proved in vain for several days, and Claus, who sat at home, waited for news from the fairies, and he almost despaired of getting the toys before Christmas Eve. He worked every moment, but it took considerable time to carve out and shape each toy and to paint it properly, so that on the morning before Christmas Eve, only half of one small shelf above the window was filled with playthings ready for children. But on this morning, the fairies who were searching in the mountains had a new thought. They joined hands and moved in a straight line through the rocks that formed the mountains, beginning at the topmost peak and working downward, so that no spot could be missed by their bright eyes. And at last they discovered the cave where the toys had been heaped up by the wicked Aguas. It did not take them long to burst open the mouth of the cave, and then each one seized as many toys as he could carry, and they all flew to Claus and laid the treasure before him. The good man was rejoiced to receive, just in the nick of time, such a store of playthings with which to load his sled, and he sent word to Glossy and Flossy to be ready for the journey at nightfall. With all his other labours, he had managed to find time since the last trip to repair the harness and strengthen the sledge, so that when the deer came to him at twilight, he had no difficulty in harnessing them. We must go in another direction tonight, he told them, where we shall find children I have never yet visited, and we must travel fast and work quickly, for my sack is full of toys and running over the brim. So just as the moon rose, they dashed out of the Laughing Valley and across the plain and over the hills to the south. The air was sharp and frosty, and the starlight touched the snowflakes and made them glitter like countless diamonds. The reindeer leapt onward with strong, steady bounds, and Claus's heart was so light and merry, he laughed and sang while the wind whistled past his ears. With a ho-ho-ho and a ha-ha-ha and a ho-ho-ha-ha-hee, now away we go over the frozen snow, as merry as can be, ho-ho-ho. Jack Frost heard him and came racing up with his nippers. But when he saw it was Claus laughing, he turned away again. The mother of owls heard him as he passed near a wood and stuck her head out of the hollow places in the tree trunks. But when they saw who it was, they whispered to the owlets, nestling near them, that it was only Santa Claus carrying toys to the children. It is strange how much these mother owls know. Claus stopped at some of the scattered farmhouses and climbed down the chimneys to leave presents for the babies. Soon afterwards he reached a village and worked merrily for an hour distributing playthings among the sleeping little ones. Then again he went, singing his joyous carol. 
Now away we go with the gleaming snow, while the deer run swift and free. For two girls and boys we carry toys that fill their hearts with glee. Ho, ho, ho! The deer liked the sound of his deep bass voice and kept time to the song with their hoofbeats on the hard snow. But soon they stopped at another chimney, and Santa Claus, with sparkling eyes and face brushed red by the wind, climbed down its smoky sides and left a present for every child the house contained. It was a merry, happy night. Swiftly the deer ran, and busily their driver worked to scatter his gifts among the sleeping children. But the sack was empty at last, and the sledge headed homeward, and now again the race with daybreak began. Glossy and Flossie had no mind to be rebuked a second time for their tardiness, so they fled with a swiftness that enabled them to pass the gale on which the Frost King rode, and soon brought them to the Laughing Valley. It is true when Claus released his steeds from their harness, the eastern sky was streaked with grey, but Glossy and Flossie were deep in the forest before day fairly broke. Claus was so wearied with this night's work, he threw himself upon his bed and fell into a deep slumber. And while he slept, the Christmas sun appeared in the sky and shone upon hundreds of happy homes where the sound of childish laughter proclaimed that Santa Claus had made them a visit. God bless him. It was his first Christmas Eve, and for hundreds of years since then, he has nobly fulfilled his mission to bring happiness to the hearts of little children. <laughs>